Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, around the world, there's an issue under great discussion, and that has to do with the international shipping uh, community and the, the emissions that come from these international ships. It's an issue of great concern around the world, and there's actions being taken to respond to this. It has a lot to do with climate change. Uh, and we're going to talk to some real professionals today about this issue of the decarbonization of the international shipping infrastructure. Well, Peter, uh, yeah, I mean, we've been following this issue, I think, since we first started Coastal News Today doing the news. We started seeing stories. I mean, it was about yeah. alternative fuels. It was about even maybe some sail technology and using uh, advanced like you know, knowledge of the winds that we have now and satellite technology to uh, become better at moving goods around and raw materials around the planet. And uh, we've been tracking it. It's fair to say we've been running a lot of stories on it. And and in fact, when we were at the Social Coast Forum, uh, you know, way back when, I think that was in 2020. Yeah. uh, Early. uh, When we were there, there were... I remember having a very uh, vivid conversation and the energy around shipping decarbonization was there, not only with the shipping, but the ports, all of the surrounding infrastructure yeah. uh, that goes with it. So this is going to be a, a, a very fun show. We have with us uh, one of the hosts of uh, a show on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, Taylor Gels, who is the host of the Ocean Decade Show, dedicated to the UN's Ocean Decade Program. And World Ocean Day is this week, and uh, happy World Ocean Day to everybody out there, and to Taylor as well. And then joining us as our subject matter expert today as well is Dr. Brian Comer. He is the lead marine program person for the International Council on Clean Transportation, someone who's worked on this topic for several years now. And uh, I'm just looking forward to this conversation, Uh, Tyler. It's an important segment of the uh, marine economy. Uh, It has a huge impact, and we're going to learn if this industry is moving forward into a better future today. Indeed we are, and uh, you know, uh, Taylor co-hosting with us, Peter. She's going to be co-hosting with us, helping us out understand this issue. And for our audience members who uh, are familiar, of course, with Taylor and her work, uh, this is a bit of an update because uh, we'll get to learn a little bit about her new position at the Aspen Institute. All good stuff that we're looking forward to diving into. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, welcome to, welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Comer, and welcome to the show, Taylor Gels. Thank you for co-hosting on the American Shoreline Podcast. Uh, appreciate you both taking the time out to be, be with us today. Thanks. Great to be here. 
Yeah, thanks for letting me hop over and talk about what I do in my day job versus the Ocean Decade, which I've I'm still infiltrated myself in from my Canals Fellowship last year. Right. Well, Taylor, let's talk about what you're doing now as the program manager of shipping decarbonization at the uh, Aspen Institute. Tell us a little bit about your new position and introduce us to the Aspen Institute, if you would. Yeah. So the Aspen Institute is um, this incredible uh, think tank NGO that's uh, based in D.C., but with also uh, a big uh, uh, headquarters and uh, gathering place in Aspen in Colorado, which every call that I'm on, people are like, are you in Aspen? Like, show me out your window. I bet it's beautiful. And I was like, you don't want to see the DC swamp outside of me, um, <laughs> outside of my window. Um, but the Aspen Institute is uh, a gathering place for people to think deep thoughts about really important issues and not just on energy and environment that the, I'm within the energy and environment program now and our new shipping decarbonization initiative. But Aspen uh, ranges from uh talking about business to sports and society to health to kind of any facet of uh, our community that we need to think deeper thoughts about. Aspen has its tree roots all over it. Um, so I'm particular, like I said, in the energy and environment program with our new shipping decarbonization initiative that um, like you guys had noted that there's been a, a ton of conversations around shipping in the past few years that um, this is a hard to abate sector and people are now starting to put their brain power towards it because they've realized that it's not going to happen alone and by itself. And so Aspen is really coming into this space as, as a convener is what we're good at and trying to bring experts together um, from all different parts of the supply chain, different parts of the maritime sector. Um, so that's how I've been working here over the past four months or so, which is crazy to think I've been here this long already. And I, have a whole new alphabet soup to enjoy <laughs> now. Well, Taylor, uh, do us do us the pleasure and kind of tee up why uh, it is that the Aspen Institute uh, started this uh, shipping decarbonization initiative. Uh, why does it ra raise to the level of that level of concern for the Aspen Institute? I think we were really responding to what we were seeing worldwide, that there are all these pieces that have to fit together in order for maritime shipping decarbonization to proceed, that you have international politics, uh, national politics, port and infrastructure, technology development, clean energy development, workforce development, uh, you know, emissions issues, uh, that the list goes on and on. And I think that that's where Aspen likes to operate and feels really useful, that we can really bring a narrative out of these multiple pieces and bring different uh, stakeholders to the table that might not have been included in the past. And so that's why I think that um, we're really well suited for this position uh, within the shipping world. And we hope to continue to be useful as this is going forward and our, our work is kind of launching. That's a great summary. Thank you, Taylor. And uh, Brian at the International Council on Clean Technologies, uh, Introduce our audience to the organization, and if you would, uh, how important a problem is this? Can you give us a sense Size of the, it up. Yeah, the magnitude of this? Why, why should we be concerned about the emissions coming from shipping, uh, the shipping industry around the world? Certainly. Uh, the International Council on Clean Transportation, we're a nonprofit research organization we're headquartered in Washington, D.C., but we have offices around the world. Uh, we have uh, an office in Beijing, China, one in Berlin, and uh, we just recently opened up an office in Sao Paulo, Brazil. 
Um, the ICCT is mostly famous for helping to uncover the Volkswagen Dieselgate scandal. Wow. And uh, together with the West Virginia University. And so my colleagues have been instrumental in changing the the policies related to passenger vehicle emissions. And uh, I work on the shipping side. So we cover all modes of transportation at the ICCT. And at the Marine program, we're dedicated to providing policymakers with the data and the analysis that they need to avoid in the first place if we can, but otherwise to reduce and eliminate pollution from the global shipping sector. And you asked me, you know, how important is shipping? And just for a little bit of context, the global shipping sector emits about a billion metric tons of greenhouse gases each year. If it were a country, it would rank sixth in the world. Wow. It's about Damn. the same scale as all of the coal-fired power plants in the United States. Wow. So if we're successful in decarbonizing the shipping sector, it would be like replacing all of the coal-fired power plants in the United States with wind and solar. Isn't that just crazy, Peter and Tyler? Like my mind was yeah. blown the first time that I heard that I, <laughs> that stat. That is mind blowing. I didn't realize it was that significant a contributor. Uh, Brian, in the International Council on uh, Clean Technologies, the ICCT, we'll call it. Tell us about your membership. Uh, who is involved in trying to tackle this issue? Who are your partners in in trying to address this huge problem? Yeah, the, the T stands for transportation, not technology. Oh, but the ICCT is a group of over 100 professional researchers. Um, we're funded by philanthropic organizations. We get funding from the Climate Works Foundation, uh, Pisces Foundation, Climate and Clean Air Coalition, which is a group of governments that care about short-lived climate pollutants, meaning not just carbon dioxide, but also things like particles, like black carbon, the black soot that comes out of all sorts of uh, diesel engines, but including uh, ships and also methane. Uh, and we also are sometimes funded by uh, governments themselves. We've done work recently for Environment and Climate Change Canada, which is the equivalent of the EPA uh, in Canada. Wow. Well, I got to say, I had no idea about that statistic and it's just resonating. And I'm, boy, am I glad that there is uh, this council and Brian, that you and your team are working on this issue. But it does seem like a monumental task when I think about it. These are, you know, the even the small vessels, ocean going vessels are tight are huge. I was going to say Titanic, but I guess that could be confused. Oh yeah. That's the word to avoid in this sector. <laughs> they're, they're, they're ma these are massive ships and the, uh, energy required to load them, to move them, to, to work this system of global trade that we all are a part of. I mean, at least certainly all around the American shoreline, you just, Maybe up in Humboldt, California, there's some commune and we could excuse them. But most of us uh, rely on uh, global shipping for our way of life. It's a fundamental part of the U.S. economy. Um, yeah, Tyler, it's something like 80% of all goods around the world are transported via ocean freight. Wow. So it's 
everything that you're touching right now as a listener and as, as us talking here, almost uh, there's a huge percentage that it's been on a ship. No question. So Taylor, what, what I'm, what I want to ask and, and I'll, I'd invite you to even craft this question uh, better for Brian, but how do we do this? You know, what, what is the approach? Yeah, Brian, talk a little bit about all the cool partners that we're getting to work with in this kind of coalition that we're working with and how uh, all the different pieces of this puzzle that we're trying to solve. Yeah, it's a it's a really important question. You know, how do we make progress on decarbonizing or maybe even defossilizing? And and even within the community, we have groups that um, we're trying to make sure that we are um, consistent in the way that we communicate the problem and the solutions, but you can't really do that unless everybody is talking to one another. Mm -hmm. And so what we've been doing is, um, well, Aspen Institute has been, has been doing a lot of this as well, is making sure that the right stakeholders are together and talking to each other. So there are some groups that are more advocacy focused. They want to do direct campaigning work. They're trying to influence policymakers by coming up with um, advocacy campaigns, uh, groups like World Wildlife Fund, you might think of. And then there are other groups like the ICCT. We are more research focused. And so there's a real um, lack of data and quantitative policy analysis to support policymakers and to make sure that they have the information that they need to actually make an informed decision and understand what the consequences are of different policy options. And yeah, it's really astounding, Tyler and Peter and everyone, the fact that, you know, we get asked these questions like, oh, yeah, how much fuel we need or what do you do for this or how do you decarbonize this or where will we need to have different places? And until, you know, Brian and his team have started working on some of this, we didn't have clear answers to those questions. And so when you're talking to policymakers, that's not what you want. You don't want to go to them with no with a problem and no solutions. <laughs> and the solutions are different depending on what kind of ship, what size of ship, where it's operating. And for the global shipping industry, if you just think about it, we have everything from a small fishing vessel to a tugboat, to a ferry, to a cruise ship, to a container vessel, a bulk carrier transporting iron ore or coal. You've got small, medium, large, super huge container ships like the one that got stuck in the Suez Canal. Right. And we have tanker vessels. And the solution to decarbonize any one of those ships, even within the same ship type, might be different. And that's where you really need somebody to look into um, the possibilities, not only for shipping as a sector, but when you really get down to it, how do you take this ship on this route and make it a zero emission transportation move? Man, no time like the present to get started. A huge impact uh, in terms of carbon emissions. I wonder uh, either Brian or Taylor, uh, let's talk to a little bit about the basics. Uh, what kind of fuel is typically burned on on an international uh, ship of trade. Um, the grossest fuel you could possibly imagine. And then Brian can say heard. that in a much <laughs> in a much more technical way, but just think of the grossest sludge and that's what 
a lot of these big, big ships are burning. Yeah, I would second that. If you want to think about the history of how we've moved ships across the ocean, you start off with wind power in the 15th century. And from there, we went from, from wind to coal, and then from coal to diesel fuel. And then we took a big step backward in the 1950s and 60s as ship engines became larger and they were able to handle really low quality, gummy, uh, high viscosity fuel that we call heavy fuel oil. It's literally the bottom of the barrel after you've distilled out all of the lighter fuels like kerosene and what you use for gasoline. At room temperature, it's the consistency of thick peanut butter. And so you even have to heat it up to get it to move and flow through the fuel system itself. And it's only because the ship, the ships themselves and their engines have gotten so large that we're actually able to use these types of fuels. Can I, and, can I ask a question yeah. on the fuel there, Brian? Sure, um, sure. Uh, are the what what kind of engines are, are is does it use? I mean, are these internal combustion? Like, are are the, we heating it up and putting it into a cylinder, or is this more like a a turbine uh, type of engine? Or do you know? These are gigantic internal combustion engines. Wow. You think of like a car engine where you have like a say a V eight or something. You can that can fit under the hood of a car, but these engines can be four stories tall and 100,000 horsepower or more. They're just a supersized version of those same kinds of engines. Wow. So huge engines, lots of combustion, and a dreary old gummy fuel that produces a lot of emissions. Tell us about the, I think you mentioned, 1 billion metric tons of emissions in the international shipping trade per year. What a stunning number. Um, so getting these guys to switch fuels, let's talk about the toolkit. As you said, given the variety of ships involved in the, in the system, there isn't one answer. Uh, but when you're looking overall at what you might be able to bring forward as a policy advisor or as a research institute, what are some of the options that would move these ships around and produce less CO2 emissions and other gunk that they're kicking out. The first thing to recognize is that the reason why ships are using this low quality, dirty fuel is because it's the cheapest option and they're allowed to do it. And so unless the economics change, then you aren't going to expect the sector to just decarbonize by itself. Right. There's no incentive for them to do so that why would you not keep, you know, using this fuel if it's cheap and it works in your current engines, you know? I, well, and your competitors yeah. are doing the same thing. Yeah, you don't want to be at a competitive disadvantage. That's the whole that's the whole thing. When you ship stuff around the world, you sometimes are operating on really slim margins. Not recently with uh, with COVID, we've seen freight rates explode, but um, there's there's been no incentive to make those changes. And let's make things even a little bit more complicated. If you're a ship owner, most of the time, if, if you have something like a bulk carrier that can carry iron ore or coal or something like that, or an oil tanker, you don't actually pay for the fuel that the ship consumes. You rent out your ship, and whoever's rented your ship is the one that's paying for the fuel. 
but you as a ship owner are responsible for any sort of improvements or changes to the vessel itself that might improve its efficiency, reduce its energy use, things like installing wind-assisted propulsion, like uh, we have these really cool rotor sails now. And so there's a split incentive problem in the shipping industry that makes the market even more difficult to be the lever that you would use to influence behavior change. So you need to do something else. Do you guys just wonder why Brian and I have gotten ourselves into the, <laughs> that we keep talking about, well, there's this problem and this problem and this problem, but it's, uh, it's just a fascinating ecosystem that exists and has existed for so long. You know, we've been sailing stuff around the world for so long and we're just really starting to bring this industry out of the shadows almost and realizing like, oh, wow, this is kind of a, a not efficient way to move forward uh, in our you know, decarbonized economy in a, in a world that has to decarbonize and defossilize, which I, I hadn't heard that term before. I like that, Brian. Well, I love, I, I love these kind of problems because it brings to light these kind of assumptions, these detachments that we have between the planet and our economic systems. And it seems like in, as we adapt and become, you know, just more, aware of our climate more aware of our environment and more let, i'm just going to say more uh flexible more willing to bend and adapt as consumers that we will want to know uh how our products are moved around the world when i go to with a store i have no idea on which vessel it came let alone who owned the vessel and who was operating it who was renting it i mean it's totally a shadow world you just go to the store and you buy your good. And uh, I th there seems to be such an opportunity here to uh, expand our social understanding of this space. And it's actually pretty cool. You know, I could see a, a, an app, not, you know, maybe Apple should sponsor the pro podcast, <laughs> but like, I could see an <laughs> Apple product that's like brought over on a sail ship. Then that's a part of their, their uh, brand. That's a part of their kind of environmental uh, shtick. I don't know. I mean, is that is that foreseeable? Well, something that uh, the Aspen Institute, one of the unique ways that we're looking at um, the shipping issue is through the, the customers, is through the big uh, companies that ship stuff around the world and uh, trying to bring them to the conversation. Um, they, like I had said at the beginning, that there's been some players that have not been involved in this yet. And so um, these companies that have made big climate commitments that are trying to be ambitious and be leaders and say that, oh, we want to decarbonize, you know, this part of our of our scope one or scope two or scope three. And we're trying to bring maritime to their attention and make them realize that you can't reach your goals unless you focus on this sector. And you can only do that by doing it together. That it's a it's a you need a conglomeration and a group of people to stand together to make that demand. And so it's yeah, it's awareness is a huge part of it. And then uh, I think that there's so much that we can do with efficiency measures. And uh, the International Maritime uh, Organization is considering some of those currently. But it's going to have to be, Brian, I think you'll you'll agree with me. We're going to have to switch to new fuels. We cannot decarbonize under the current uh, with using the current sludge that the industry uses. Yeah, I agree. In the long term, it's going to have to be new fuels that when you evaluate them on, uh, we call it the well-to-wake basis for ships. For cars, you would call it well-to-wheel, whole life cycle analysis. You look at where the fuel came from 
and you look at its emissions both upstream when you're producing the fuel and downstream when you're using the fuel and you add those up and you see if you get zero. And if you get zero, then it's a zero emission fuel. But if you get anything above that, then it's then it's not. And there's low emission fuels and there's high emission fuels. For the shipping industry, we're looking at hydrogen used in fuel cells and ammonia used in those same kinds of gigantic internal combustion engines with some tweaks huh. to the engine systems and also to the uh, the fuel systems. I'm not familiar with this ammonia fuel. Could you, uh, I, I, I get the hydrogen one because I know you can combust it, but how does this ammonia fuel work, uh, Brian, if, if, if you don't mind going into a little detail there? So ammonia is really interesting because it's by definition a zero carbon fuel. The you know chemical uh, you know molecule it's NH three, so no carbon. That's great. Uh, you burn it in an internal combustion engine. It's very difficult to ignite, so you might need a little bit of diesel fuel to get the uh, combustion in the cylinder going. But you use a pretty small proportion of it relative to how much ammonia you use. Uh, but when you burn it, it's a zero carbon fuel, but it might not be a zero emission fuel, and it might not be a zero carbon dioxide equivalent fuel. Because of the nitrogen in the fuel and also in the air when you're doing the combustion, it's going to produce nitrogen oxides. We call it NOx for mm -hmm. short. It leads to acid rain and also smog. Uh, has human health impacts. Um, it's an air pollutant. And also nitrous oxide, N2O, laughing gas, like when you go to the dentist. Yep. It's a very strong greenhouse gas, 300 times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide. And so while ammonia can be a zero carbon fuel, it might not be a zero emission fuel. And the real key is that no matter what, even if we were able to reduce all of the uh, emissions from the engine when you use ammonia, it must be made with renewable energy. So that way it has zero or right. near zero life cycle emissions. Okay, so it's a devil's in the details as always when you get to large scale- As always, yeah. You know, environmental problems with technology and economics involved. This is why things like the Aspen Institute and the ICCT are so important. You've got to have the technical and policy horsepower to really sort through these options and influence a worldwide market with no single regulator. But this is what I want to bring up now. You mentioned, Taylor, the International Maritime Organization, the IMO, which is part of the United Nations. I've been reading in Coastal News today uh, about what the IMO is saying about international shipping emissions. They seem to be laying down some markers in the water and saying, look, we want reductions in the emissions from the international shipping industry. I'm also starting to see some very interesting investment possibilities going on here. The application of scrubbers, the investment in green hydrogen production for shipping. Uh, so my, you know, I want to go down this path and Brian, can you give us an overview of the IMO, what role it has here and how much power does it have? What are they up to when it comes to the issue of decarbonization of the shipping industry? Yeah, the IMO is a specialized agency of the United Nations. 
it regulates international shipping, both for safety and also for environmental reasons. Um, it was formed after World War II, and uh, it really didn't cover the environment until um, there was the Torrey Canyon oil spill uh, disaster uh, in the 70s. And uh, that's what really got the attention of IMO to regulate uh, oil spills and, and try and prevent oil spills, so regulate ships for environmental protection. And then in the 1990s, we ended up um, with a new annex to a international treaty that we call MARPOL for short, Marine Pollution. The full name is the International Convention for the Prevention of Pollution from Ships. There was a new annex, they call it, called Annex 6, and that regulates air pollution from ships. And that's what we're using at the IMO to regulate not only conventional pollutants, like sulfur emissions, but also greenhouse gases. And you mentioned scrubbers, and it sounds like uh, scrubbers are a good thing, right? You reduce air pollution by removing sulfur from the exhaust, spraying it with the seawater uh, to do so. That sort of neutralizes some of the acidic sulfur in the exhaust because the seawater is more basic. But because we're burning that dirty, heavy fuel oil, which contains heavy metals and contaminants, carcinogens, all of that is being collected in the wash water that you're spraying into the exhaust, and that's just dumped overboard. So new ICCT research has shown that uh, 10 billion metric tons of scrubber wash water is discharged overboard by global shipping today. And wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, well. yeah, wait a minute, hang on here. This is the current, now I've, I, I understand the concern with the scrubber and it's absolutely not the way to go in my personal opinion because the noxic uh, discharges from the smokestack is being, as you say, removed from the smokestack flume and then being discharged in the, 10 billion tons now. Um, I, the, what makes me concerned about that is ships coming in and out of, say, the Port of Houston are going through Galveston Bay. They're discharging, I would assume, assume constantly. I've got to think that the water quality implications in nearshore waters that are highly trafficked are going to be significant here. Is that a legitimate problem and concern here? It's just I, can, I can't believe 10 billion tons a year already with this technology. This is this is a brand new problem that the IMO brought upon itself and us by attempting to regulate air pollution, but creating a water pollution problem. Yeah, it's uh, transferring yeah, pollution from one place to another. And ICCT is, are the experts on, on scrubbers. What happened was in 2020, the maximum allowable sulfur content of marine fuels for the heavy fuel oil went from 3.5% sulfur which is 35,000 parts per million. You can compare that to 15 parts per million for on-road diesel in the United States and 10 in Europe uh, to 0.5% sulfur in 2020. And um, in the lead up to that, a number of ships, actually over 4,000, have installed scrubbers because if you have a scrubber, you can continue to use the high sulfur heavy fuel oil and just remove the equivalent amount of sulfur from the exhaust and get into compliance. It, it basically pretends that you're burning the cleaner fuels. And so with the um, coronavirus pandemic, we've avoided so far some of the scrubber discharges in port from 
things like cruise ships, but we've been operating oil tankers, like you were talking about for Galveston, bulk carriers and container ships. All of these ships are starting to use scrubbers now as well. And so we are very concerned about the water quality impacts, the impacts on marine life, and especially the impacts on coral reef systems that are already uh, bleaching due to increased ocean temperatures and acidification from climate change. Well, no shit. I mean, goodness gracious. Yeah, no kidding. Come on now, the IMO and these... I mean, Brian, I'm sorry because we're not in this business. I can. This just kind of pisses me well, off that this solution is absolutely... Please finish your thought, Peter. Well, it's worse. Right. Uh, you know, I feel like uh, it's pretty clear now that the atmosphere and the ocean are connected uh, in just like every way imaginable. And we just seem to learn more and more and more about how connected they are. And the idea that from a regulatory perspective, we would create that outcome, that it would be allowed. It would be allowed that, that we can transfer... Uh, an, an air pollutant into the water what was this truly unforeseen it just seems like this is a, a very clear problem uh that that would be created by this how, how did this happen brian and the very first instance when imo regulated sulfur they um assumed that you could use these sulfur scrubbers inside of uh, sulfur emission control areas because IMO was going to have one standard for uh, fuel quality, fuel sulfur in the open ocean and a more stringent standard for countries that established emission control areas through the IMO. But to make it so that it was mm, less, well, you can imagine the, the cleaner fuel is more expensive, right? So to sort of ease the burden on the industry, they said, well, if you're operating in a sulfur emission control area, you can use a scrubber um, and continue to use the cheaper heavy fuel oil and just remove it from, from the exhaust. And we'll set up these guidelines for discharges. Um, the IMO developed guidelines for maximum um, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon. It's just a, a, a proxy for how much oil they're discharging from the scrubbers that's being removed from the exhaust and um, a, a proxy for heavy metals. They looked at turbidity, you know, just how, how turbid the water is from the discharge. And they set those standards based on three scrubbers. Two of them were prototypes and they set those limits so that the industry and the scrubbers could achieve them. You know, it's not a science-based eco-toxicological approach where they're trying to set a safe, safe limit, quote unquote, if there is one. Uh, you know, it's these guidelines were set in 2008 and they were reviewed three times since then, including most recently in 2020. Now we have thousands of ships with scrubbers and those guidelines for water discharges have never been strengthened since then. Wow. Yeah, that doesn't seem like the right path to go down, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I just don't see that uh, because of the concentration of shipping and therefore the discharges into specific lanes of traffic that get close to shore and get into communities. I just can't see the near over the long term if everybody's on scrubbers. Uh, you got to think that these the density of the discharges uh, could be a big problem in the near shore. Uh, 
enforcing discharge limits and you can't drop stuff here and there is notoriously difficult in shipping and why we have a lot of ballast problems with ballast water discharges. That's right. And the good news is that some countries and ports have taken things into their own hand, recognizing that the IMO takes a very long time, multiple years to even agree to do something. And then the way that the IMO procedure works is that once IMO agrees to do something, it takes about two years before it can be enforceable. So we're seeing uh, like the state of California, for instance, does not allow the use of scrubbers within 24 nautical miles of the California coast. Um, and we're seeing uh, ports around the world refusing to allow ships to use scrubbers in their waters. And so for, pol for uh, governments that are concerned about these uh, cumulative effects that you were talking about, you know, um, accumulation in the sediment, bioaccumulation in marine wildlife, uh, and also especially to protect coral reefs, they can um, take unilateral action to protect their waters. But of course, it's sort of like having a smoking section in a restaurant, if you, if you can remember that. You can have a smoking section and, and a non-smoking section, uh, but some of the smoke's going to end up in the non-smoking section. So um, really what ought to happen is that there should be global rules um, that prohibit the use of scrubbers as a compliance option. And that can be done through IMO, but it's going to take some time. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, and Brian, speaking of IMO, like there's some big uh, meetings coming up this year that uh, you and others are prepping for. So what are the big issues on the table uh, related to not only scrubbers, but decarbonization in general? What's the IMO hopefully going to try to do or at least discuss uh, this year? After the Paris Agreement in 2015, it was clear that the IMO needed to make its own climate plan. Uh, and so international shipping under the IMO and international aviation under ICAO, International Civil Aviation Organization, are each creating their own climate plans. And IMO agreed to theirs, their initial climate strategy in 2018. And that includes a number of goals. It includes at least reducing the carbon intensity of shipping 40% by 2030 compared to 2008, reducing emissions by 50% in total between 2008 and 2050. And um, oh, by the way, it should be an emissions reduction pathway that's consistent with achieving the Paris Agreement temperature goals. And that's the line in the climate strategy that environmental NGOs and advocates hold on to and say, look, if you've agreed to that, then that means we need to understand the science and the emissions reduction trajectories that where the international shipping sector is doing its part to actually help achieve this broader society's goals of limiting warming to no more than 1.5 degrees or well below two degrees. And so since 2018, the IMO has been working on uh, establishing the regulations that would actually, in theory, result in achieving their goals because the climate strategy itself is not legally binding, but the regulations that IMO creates are legally binding. And so the current debates at IMO are how to reduce emissions from the existing fleet how to make it so that new ships are increasingly more efficient over time, and also creating the rules for what qualifies as a low emission 
fuel. So that way we know that if we use those fuels in the future uh, to decarbonize, that we're actually getting the life cycle emissions reduction benefits that we want. Yeah, you know, what what came to mind there is the idea of uh, sustainability and that we have to be thinking about the full life cycle of our of our systems. And man, we started this pro this conversation off with all of the complexity, all of the different types of ships, all of the different types of ports, all of the different countries. Brian, I'm curious, who who are the major are there industry champions right now other than the the advocacy side? I know that we've got p folks like Taylor at think tanks and and advocacy groups that are working hard. You mentioned uh, one of them earlier in the show. I, I, I bl I'm blanking on which one. Um, are, are, do we have industry uh, supporters? Do we have port, port supporters or maybe some some uh, nations that are, are taking a particularly uh, ambitious stance on this? Well, I have to give uh, Maersk some credit because um, they have explained that they will not use LNG, liquefied natural gas, as a marine fuel, which is becoming increasingly popular um, at, for new build ships. About it has a lot of the same issues, and Maersk is the biggest um, shipping company in the world, and so their, their statements mean a lot in this sector. Right. Um, using LNG, which is mostly methane, the ship engines, because methane is not a regulated pollutant, are through the roof. And so you're reducing carbon dioxide, but you're emitting way more methane. And so the total greenhouse gas implications mean that using LNG is not a climate solution for ships. And Maersk, to their credit, have come out and said, because of the life cycle impacts of using LNG as a marine fuel, we're not going to pursue it, unlike their competitor, MSC, which is another very large container shipping company, which has gone, uh, you know, all of their new build ships practically are going to run on LNG. From a government point of view, it's been really refreshing to have the United States back on side. Um, under the Trump administration, the U.S. was a, a blocker of progress and trying to drag its feet. And under the Biden administration, we're seeing renewed U.S. leadership um, and arguing for stronger ambition and trying to hold the IMO to account to make sure that it's doing it's writing regulations that actually can achieve its emissions reduction goals or if not fully achieve them, at least have emissions start to reduce this this decade, because what the IMO has on the table right now um, on its greenhouse gas uh, emissions regulations doesn't really bend the curve. Uh, so it's been nice to have them back in the uh, on the right side of things. From yeah, the U.S. the U.S. in the first uh, you know few months of the administration, um, uh, Special Envoy uh, John Kerry uh, made an announcement that the U.S. is going to pursue zero emissions in shipping by 2050. So that's really different than. Uh, a lot of the conversations have been around net zero, but to go for a full zero and to be uh, really strong in this has been a really great um, uh, kind of almost a breath of fresh air to the international climate shipping community. Absolutely. And we shouldn't forget uh, either that there are uh, small island developing states, including Pacific Island states like the Marshall Islands, which is uh, depending on the day, um, usually the second largest ship register, meaning that um, besides Panama, uh, 
uh, or Liberia and Marshall Islands, those are the big three. Um, they have the uh, one of the largest fleets of ships flying their flag and, and ship owners will pay to register their ships in the Marshall yeah. Islands. So in shipping, you not only have ship owners, ship renters, people who put their stuff on ships, the crew is from a, a different country, but then you can register your ship in 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 different countries as well. So yeah, just to further <laughs> amalgamate this uh, crazy international industry. So they have a lot of skin in the game um, and shipping is a main part of their economy, um, but they are also very strong climate champions at the IMO. And this changed when the Marshall Islands um, government took the seat at the IMO rather than letting the industry representatives from the shipping registry speak on behalf of the government. Hmm. And the Marshall Islands itself is in, in danger of not existing under the worst consequences of climate change. And so that's been, that's one of the really interesting and, and nice, <laughs> one of the few uh, bright spots that we can really point to in the, in the shipping debate is that a country that really does have um, economic interests in shipping can recognize the longer term threat uh, and really argue for stronger climate action. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Maersk, the Dutch uh, shipping conglomerate, the largest shipping company in the world, uh, swearing off LNG as an alternative to the, the thick bunker sea fuel option. I also thought I saw that they were not interested in the application of scrubber technology. Is that true? Well, they've done an about face on that one, unfortunately. Um, early on, they had said, we're not going to go the scrubber route. and We'll just pay uh, a little more for our fuel. Um, and, and then they've, they've uh, done a 180 on that. But Rats. if anybody from Maersk is listening, I, I uh, yeah, think you on, ought to guys. consider abandoning those things. Agreed. Yeah, we'll, it's we'll a bad, write them they a letter. make no sense. <clears throat> no, you... Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was an early sign of adoption when uh, the IMO came out with the carbon reduction goals. Uh, and I saw this major shipping company seem to take a progressive and early stance on it. Are there folks in the industry uh, that we can highlight? I mean, is there anyone out there who you are seeing making the kind of investments or long term plans to take seriously? the necessity of reducing carbon emissions from the shipping industry. Any stars on the stage? I think I have to go back to Maersk again. They've put their money where their mouth is and they've established a uh, decarbonization center where I think they've hired a hundred engineers, which is about the size of the entire wow. ICCT just to work on maritime decarbonization research huh. and development. Yeah, Maersk is, it has realized that this is both an environmental issue, but also a business opportunity. If some of these regulations change and fuel becomes more expensive and we're switching to different fuels and they're the only ones in the game that can uh, provide this service, then it's a win-win for them, honestly. So it's uh, I think that is hopefully starting to permeate through the rest of the industry slowly, slowly, slowly. And that's um, part of the work that... Uh, our organizations are trying to think about and foster is how can we show people that it's not just, you're not doing this just to be green, but there is a, in the decarbonization of the world, there's a huge uh, economic opportunity. One thing that we should highlight is that the vast majority of ship owners 
own one or two ships. There's about a hundred thousand commercial ships that you could actually that are big enough to count, uh, and most of those are, uh, you know, ship owners that have one or two ships, maybe a, a handful. And so, companies like Maersk have an opportunity in the means and the profits to invest in their own research and development. But it would really help out the smaller companies and ship owners if the IMO could set clear targets with uh, deadlines and not just a 2050 target, but what are we gonna do by 2025 and 2030, 2035 and make it predictable. So that way they can go to the bank, they can get uh, the financing they, that they need to buy new ships, to retrofit their existing ships and to know that they're going to get a return on that investment because really they're forced to wait until they're forced to take action uh, to make these investments um, with the uncertainty that we have in the regulatory regime. So it would really be helpful from you know an equity point of view to make sure that the IMO actually sets global rules that are predictable that allow for these investments um, by companies other than the behemoths. Got it. You know, does it give in the policy analysis or uh, at the Aspen Institute, Taylor, um, I see these ship cracking operations where uh, these big ships are driven up onto the beach and broken down and there's new ones being made all the time. What is the life cycle? How long does a ship last? Uh, I've got to think it's less than 20 years for the, the major companies we're going to rebuild every ship in the world in the next 20 years, aren't we? Isn't there a chance to make a move here? Brian, I think it's uh, 25 to 30 years is what they say on average for, for ship life. But a lot of these companies have said that they have ones that last a lot longer than that, or that they at least run a lot longer than that. I agree with you. If, if we want to have a fully zero emission fleet, we're pretty darn close to it by, say, 2050, then we need full-size zero-emission vessels that are trading across the ocean by 2030 and to, to scale up rapidly from there. Yeah, and that's what's been really interesting. The U.S. and, and Norway, and uh, I'm forgetting the third country, but are part of this mission innovation relaunch that the Biden administration have done. And uh, shipping decarbonization is a big part of, of their their priorities. And one of the things that they said is they hope to have like hundreds of zero emission ships on, on the water by 2030, which is just a huge positive message to the rest of the industry that, oh, uh, we, we need to start thinking about this if that's the date that we need to start having these on the water. And the technology is is there and being developed. And there's lots of groups that are thinking about, you know, how to retrofit engines or how to build new ships. And so it's going to be the... Um, the demand from customers to say, we need this service. So you need to companies get around to building these ships and providing it for us. And uh, the regulations that say, okay, your ships have to be like this. And that's what it's going to be. So I think it's this kind of dual play of um, customer demand in our uh, capitalistic society, you know, and then the, uh, the regulation side of it as well. Well, I'm all for it. I'm what I'm reminded of, uh, Peter, are the Liberty ships which were th with this incredible national uh, effort to resupply our allies during World War II. And we built, I mean, the statistic was like one came off the dock every, I don't know, hour or something. It was like one per day. 
we were pumping these things out. And I mean, they were being sunk. I mean, it was a treacherous voyage over there across the Atlantic. Uh, the Germans were hunting them down, but we just kept them coming. We need a similar yeah. shipbuilding exercise. Man, I would love to see the United States lead the way on this. Uh, with a full, as as uh, Brian, you said, the the well to the whatever it was, dock. Wake. Well to wake. Well the wake to, of the ship. Well, well to wake. Uh, you know, we need the full life cycle to be accounted for. But man, we should lead the world here. I mean, come on, Joe Biden. This is jobs big time. Tesla. We need a tent. We need it. We need an Elon Musk of ship <laughs> ship ma- uh, ship ship motors. Yeah, it's um, it's fascinating that the u.s is the biggest the u.s has a really interesting role to play because while we don't build a lot of ships anymore we're the biggest importer in the world um so people come to our port shanghai to la long beach is like a main highway across the ocean that we have a lot of stuff shipped over from from asia to here so the u.s has a huge role to play in not only our uh you know we the our shipbuilding password maritime nation but also in our current consuming nature in saying if you want to dock here you know you need to follow these regulations and so while imo level regulations are really important um there's room like brian had talked about earlier that la and california have said you know you're not allowed to have scrubbers here that there's individual actions that can be taken on a port level and a national level that can really start to make a difference especially in these bigger um these bigger ports and these bigger uh trade lanes we just got to think big. I mean, I, as much as I love the idea of scrubbing a dirty fuel so that the pollutants don't get out into the environment, I'm I'm very much in favor of that in theory. Uh, the answer here is not that. The answer is to find a uh, a, a carbon neutral fuel, it seems, or or a system, a carbon neutral energy system that we can power this marine transportation system with. And uh, I love the challenge. I think it's just the challenge of our day. And it's so exciting seeing these pictures of uh, from around the world of new like sailing cargo vessels coming online. These are not like wooden ships. This is not retrograde. This is the future. This is the age of sail 2.0. Uh, highly advanced uh, sales, highly advanced designs. The engineering is incredible. And that's just one option. The hydrogen thing to me is really exciting. The idea of using computers and our understanding of currents and you know shipping lanes and how to transport things more efficiently so that we can, in a way, cut down on the energy footprint, but just by being more efficient. These are all like, this is very much the the. the the challenge this is this meets the moment this meets the moment we have all the tools we do we can do this yeah and the really cool part of it too is that a lot of these emissions uh issues and decarbonizing the sector have land-based solutions you know like brian was talking about producing um hydrogen and ammonia and uh using renewable energy for that and that involves you know building wind farms and uh, building more uh more solar plants and having more renewable energy technology technology on land in order to power that production. And so it's really uh, shipping is a great kind of metaphor almost for what needs to happen overall in the US and globally to to decarbonize. Big problem, very complicated, too much to think about for a one hour podcast. But uh, Brian, can you give us your closing thoughts? Are you optimistic we can make meaningful progress on this issue in the next decade? 
we can and we really have to. If we're serious about meeting the challenge of climate change, every sector needs to do its part in reduce emissions in order to make sure that we avoid the worst consequences of climate change. We have the technologies and the know-how to do it. We need the research and development to do it. And we need the supporting policies to make sure that the transition that we want to see happen does happen on a predictable way that helps achieve those climate goals. Sounds great. Taylor, closing thoughts, please, from you as well. What what really encourages me is uh, just being in this you know sector for a short amount of time is seeing all these hands on deck, literally and figuratively, um, with taking a really sector wide approach to thinking about this, and that stakeholders uh, are coming out of the woodworks and we're really thinking about these issues in a more holistic way than we ever have before. And I think we can say that with the entire um, you know renewable energy push throughout the world and decarbonization push but in shipping uh getting to see stakeholders come together and think critically about this issue and connecting it to their bigger climate goals and bigger goals is uh really heartening and makes me feel like we can all move together toward uh, a better future well we we sure hope so and it's great to have such strong leadership and intelligent people uh, involved at the top end of this deal keeps you optimistic gives me a little hope uh, ladies and gentlemen it is dr brian comer he is the lead of the marine program at the international council on clean transportation look them up on the internet the icct learn about their initiatives support their efforts and Taylor Gels, who is the program manager of Shipping Decarbonization Initiative with the Aspen Institute in Washington, D.C., two of the coastal professionals trying to tackle one of the more complex programs and problems around the world uh, when it comes to the coastal uh, economy. So we really thank you guys for sharing your insights with the uh, audience and uh, appreciate you taking the time out to, to share your skills and insights. I was confused Spun right around and found I'd lost Things that I couldn't move The beaches they sell to build their hotels My father's and I was you Father